0: Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler.
1: We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived.
0: So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Yes, Hannah, I can <sighs> see from the way your hair descends that you've been up since at least five o'clock this morning and uh, the way your teeth uh, are, you've drank coffee and uh, your shirt is brown, which means you live in uh, Washington. It's gray with Between Lewis and Lovecraft, so you are obviously a fan of one of the more prominent uh, Arthurian uh, uh, shows on on the podcast realm, which means you are indeed an educated person. Uh, you have plants behind you, which means you uh, you, you uh, have a, an excess of oxygen in your room, which makes you a uh, more bubbly and happy person. I would say that these are astute and uh, accurate <laughs> observations. Oh, man,
1: you deduced it all correctly. <laughs> you would have made a great doctor in the 1850s. Yeah!
0: I am. I'm basically uh, Robert Downey Jr. right now. So you know,
1: <laughs> I should have deduced as much just by looking at you. Yeah, you know, you've got a beard, you've got hair, you're a man,
0: Robert <laughs> Downey Jr. <laughs> the prerequisites for being both Robert Downey Jr. and Sherlock Holmes: a beard and a ma- yes. hair <laughs> and a man. Although uh, everybody can be Holmes. Henry Henry Cavill didn't have a beard, so you know when was he sherlock
1: holmes have i missed a whole extra series
0: uh yeah well a movie um enola holmes with uh millie oh, bobby brown
1: Oh, i haven't seen that well now i gotta watch that
0: yeah it was mm, it was a movie <laughs> i don't know okay never mind it, it, it had weird tones welcome back to between lewis and lovecraft where we talk about weird movies on netflix uh it had weird tones like it felt like it wanted to be the like a, a like a teenager, like a, a maybe a middle grade movie for girls. Um, but it was dark. Like it had like some murder in it. It had some some darker themes and stuff. And I'm like, I I don't I don't if I had a 12 year old daughter like that. I can see why it, she'd be interested in this. But they straight up murder a person in this like that it's okay it's a lot so i don't know i don't know so like it
1: but. can't decide what genre it wants to be or like what age group it wants to target
0: yeah and like they i think they try to downplay a lot of sherlock holmes uh, honestly a little bit more to like who he is in the books probably because we've seen a more fantastical version of holmes in recent years so I think that's probably a a pretty big hard hit for people where they're expecting Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch to show up. And it's like, no, it's mostly just Henry Cavill, you know, hanging out and being kind of smart.
1: Kind of smart. Okay. (laughs) More approachable.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (sighs) Well, so our listeners can probably deduce from this uh, intro that we are going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes and the man who created him.
0: Are, is this your uh, new Arthur favorite, Conan Doyle? Is this your new favorite word, deduce?
1: I'm just going to use deduction and deduced every opportunity I get during yeah. this, because that's that's what he was obsessed with, you yeah. know. Well, deduced Watson. He was
0: obsessed with deduces. <laughs>
1: Deducing.
0: <laughs> he, he would love to take a big uh, deduce. <laughs> uh,
1: it, okay, how many minutes? It's been like two minutes, and we're in the toilet already.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's ruined but forever. yeah
1: i had no idea how crazy arthur conan doyle's life was and how much he did like yeah i made it to probably when he was 20 years old and i was already feeling shitty about myself i was like i've done nothing
0: i was like i was like okay we're gonna have a boring stuffy like tolkien but without god sort of situation going on he's gonna go to <laughs> college or whatever turns out he's like tolkien plus um herman melville plus um Like an actual doctor. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) he's a bunch of different things all thrown together to create this guy who hated his own creation.
1: We're going to get to that.
0: Yeah. It's a little teaser. Okay. Stick around. A little
1: teaser. But for now, should we start at the very beginning?
0: As we always do, yes, of course.
1: As we always do. So Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle was born (laughs) May 22nd, 1859 in Edinburgh, Scotland, beautiful city. He was the second child of Charles and Mary and one of 10 children total, so just a huge-ass family. Uh, He grew up Catholic, but as we'll touch on later um, in, in the show, he... It didn't take him long to start questioning his parents' religion. Sure, uh, He was a scrappy kid who got into lots of physical fights. Uh, it basically sounded like turf wars with kids from other parts of the neighborhood. Um, and Doyle made it to the top of his gang, but apparently when he went up against the top rich boy from across the street one year, it was a draw. Both went home bruised and bloody, and his mom was just horrified that he'd been out fighting like
0: this. You know, just I, just to interject, of course, obviously I do that. Yes. Uh, I'm still stuck on the middle name Ignatius. Um, <laughs> looked it up. It means fiery or ardent in. Uh, so it's a very Latin appropriate word. name. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're describing a good old Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle to a T at this point.
1: His parents set him up to be a fighter.
0: You can't give a name to a son like Ignatius and expect him to sit around all day. (laughs) Am I right? You kind of... No, you cannot. You made the choice. You got to live with it now, lady.
1: (laughs) And I should mention, because I always forget to off the top of the show, uh, the biography I read was Arthur and Sherlock by Michael Sims, um, which actually... I've not had a lot of good luck with biographies lately, as we mentioned in our Shakespeare episode, but I really liked this one. Um, it was very well written. Uh, Michael Sims does a good job of like writing it in narrative form. So he really sets the scene, which made it difficult sometimes to follow along in chronological order. Cause he'd like really put you in uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's life or like whatever. It's basically written like a novel sometimes with actual scenes um, which is entertaining, but hard to to take notes on yeah, sometimes.
0: Bio I ended up reading uh, Teller of Tales, The Life of Sona S- The Life of Arthur Conan Doyle by Daniel Stash Hower. What a great name. Yeah. like you gotta grow a mustache with that name. Um, <laughs> and it was good. It was, I mean, I didn't make it all the way through. I mean, it's me who obviously expects me to finish a bio at this point. Um, but it was it was an interesting listen. Um, and he starts out really like focused on the end of Doyle's life, which is really in an interesting um aspect of his life. So we'll get there eventually. But um, but so he spent a lot of time there, and then he like starts the story again, but then he goes to the end of the story again to explain more. <laughs> and then he starts the story through and i'm like that was weird like you're really obsessed with this whole end of life story thing okay (laughs) moving on um but But that
1: fits well because mine ended like pretty much right after the sherlock story started taking off so i got to the end of this biography and i was like shit there's like 40 years unaccounted for here
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i i got to get to know his the end of his life uh quite quite well.
1: Well, good. We are well suited to to do the entire life then. So, uh getting back into it, our our scrappy young lad um at home was much more intellectual preferred curling up with a book uh, and read super fast. Apparently the library had to limit the number of books he could check out.
0: Nice.
1: He uh, particularly loved books about war or adventure and books about the American West. He uh, he really pictured himself as like this macho adventurer, which we will definitely see later on in his life too. Yeah, a little
0: um, bit, and I his guess. Love of the...
1: Yeah. <laughs> his love of the arts was um, instilled by his family. He and his siblings remembered that their mother... Always walked around holding a book close to her face at all times, even when she was doing chores or other tasks. Uh, his father, Charles, actually had a side career as a painter and illustrator. He illustrated um, numerous books and, and like ads and stuff. Um, but Arthur's uncle was a much more famous member of the family. Uh, he was artist Richard Dickey Doyle, who created the Punch and Judy masthead for Punch magazine, which was a popular hum- humor and satire magazine. And you're just laughing because his middle name is Dickie, aren't you? Good old Dickey uh, Doyle. Nickname.
0: Come on down and see what Dickey does whipping up today. I don't know why, but yes, I'm <laughs> laughing at the name Dickey Doyle. Literally the greatest name that you can give to somebody. like you have to start a barbecue place if you if that's your name it needs to be a barbecue place
1: i don't think barbecue was super uh super common in the 1800s in scotland i think uh that was a little more american
0: the only reason why dickie doyle wasn't a barbecue man was because he lived in the 1800s in in scotland
1: (laughs) we need to resurrect him
0: i you know what i'm gonna make the logo for dickie doyle's barbecue (laughs) that'll be the next shirt that'll be the episode shirt (laughs) Come on, man. it'll be our
1: author's uncle that yeah. you put on the shirt
0: it'll, it'll be good old old-fashioned scotland barbecue
1: oh gross i can only imagine probably like blood sausage if you've ever had that Ew. absolutely disgusting no just barbecue no but offense. it's in I love scotland. scotland don't
0: ruin this gross
1: Okay, moving away from barbecue, which didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other members of uh, Arthur Doyle's family were also immersed in the arts. So really, like he was surrounded by it. Everyone was fostering his interest in and access to literature. Sure. Um, and though some of the other relatives were, were quite wealthy, um, the Doyles were not well off at all. Arthur was actually always embarrassed about their tiny apartment when relatives or strangers visited. um And his dad was a drinker, uh, which really hampered his career and um, artistic efforts because he was so undisciplined, and it put the the family in a tight spot financially. Um, Among his successes, he, as I mentioned, illustrated numerous books. He also helped design a fountain on commission from Queen Victoria once while he was working at a design firm.
0: Whoa, Um, a fountain. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm trying for to the sound Queen.
0: enthusiastic. I don't give a shit about a fountain.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, when you go to Scotland, like the architecture is crazy and amazing, and the fountain that he made is probably still there. Oh, like okay. everything you know in Scotland is one. way cooler and older than shit in America. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but by the time Arthur was born, Charles mostly traded his watercolor paintings for drinks at the local pub.
0: <laughs> of course. Um, and by the time picture yourself here we go uh, just give me a drink and you'll have fight you'll get our whole picture of you
1: by the time Doyle was three his dad was often found passed out on the floor and apparently once he even drank furniture varnish which sounds
0: <gasps> awful oh my god that's disgusting
1: and he was so bad he actually like stole from his kids piggy banks to pay for booze he would buy um, things on credit and then sell them for cash. And then the like creditors would show up and his wife, Mary, would have no idea what was going on. Uh. So this poor woman was dealing with all of this. Um, but apparently his dad was likable enough that his bosses let him keep his job for years, despite the fact that he rarely showed up for work. So he must have had a great personality when he wasn't drunk.
0: <laughs> he's terrible, but he's got a great personality. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It seems like Arthur didn't spend a whole lot of time at home after he got to about nine, uh, because that was in 1868 when some of his wealthy uncles arranged for him to attend a Jesuit boarding school called Stonyhurst in Lancashire, England. So this was like well over a hundred miles away. I'm pretty he sure stayed it's there.
0: Lancashire.
1: Lancashire. Is that how you pronounce it? Okay. I don't,
0: I don't know. Hey, get at us. It probably is. If you're in the UK, anywhere. Let us know how it's actually pronounced.
1: The best I can do is Edinburgh because I've been there. So I knew that you don't say Edinburgh. (laughs) 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 Um, So he stayed at Stonyhurst for several years, really only going home on like summer holidays. Um, And from what this biography was saying, it appears that he both wanted respect and admiration, but also had a very rebellious side. He frequently ended up getting beatings at Stonyhurst for minor infractions. Uh, But when he realized that he was beaten more often than most of his classmates, he took it as a source of pride, like proof of his independence that he wasn't going to listen to those darn teachers.
0: I mean, yeah, at some point you got to do that to survive, right? Like, it's like, I got to justify getting the (laughs) beatings. Otherwise, I'm going to go insane.
1: It's like, I'm not a bad kid. I'm just independent.
0: I'm different. I'm unique. I'm not like the other kids.
1: (laughs) Around age 15, he discovered a new talent for poetry. So while he had always been an avid reader, um, it seemed like he didn't do a ton of, like, I think he was a bit of a storyteller, but he was so busy with other activities and getting into brawls and stuff that it was around his teenage years where he really discovered that he loved writing. Uh, when all the other boys were complaining about a poetry assignment, he found that the words flowed out of him. And then the next year, he edited the school magazine, wrote a bit more poetry, and miraculously passed all of his exams with honors, because I guess despite being very bright, he was not a good student, like many of the authors we've talked about. Yeah,
0: that's like a classic move. If you have a, if you have a student who's like not a good student, but they're smart, just go ahead and and call up whatever publisher you know And be like hey I got your next author here It's gonna happen.
1: Yeah statistically it's gonna Happen
0: You hear that um, Mrs. It, Mrs. Miller uh, I w- I'm gonna be an author That's right I'm gonna do it You're wrong about me Whatever Tyler's <laughs> gonna go get
1: therapy now We're gonna move on <laughs> so also around his teenage years he really started to reject the faith he'd been brought up in he didn't like his professor's narrow-mindedness or the catholic church's stance that outsiders were eternally doomed he thought that was silly
0: you're gonna tell me that he's gonna question the faith that justified him getting beatings at school (laughs) you're gonna tell me that that didn't work to make him a better person and have more faith (laughs) okay you know it's crazy i who could have predicted? <laughs> sounds like um, sounds like it's his fault for not having enough. It faith. is
1: his fault. He actually was not beaten enough. If he'd been beaten yeah, more, he would have Yeah, if he had been be beaten more,
0: he would have had more faith. So obviously the school didn't do a good enough job.
1: <laughs> um f- fortunately for him, he got to leave Stonyhurst around 1875 when he went to another boarding school in Austria. So I think that's really interesting how even though his family was pretty poor comparatively like he got to travel a bit quite a bit and had like a really good education thanks mostly to his rich uncles um so i think he he learned german when he was there because the school they had like kids go on long walks all the time like basically hiking or trekking and they had a rule that you had to go with one of the german speakers so all the english kids learned how to speak german and i think all the german kids learned how to speak english huh
0: that's interesting uh
1: while he was there he also started a handwritten school newspaper sort of um but it was banned after two issues for an editorial complaining that the staff read students letters before distributing them so he got shut down for being too honest
0: (laughs) that's how it is in the uk the communist bastards
1: well, that one was in Austria, but yeah. Uh, the Austrian
0: communist bastards. That one's not actually Not far too off, freedom so. loving.
1: <laughs> and uh, then after he finished high school, he returned to Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Uh, but while Arthur had been away, the family's financial situation had become even more dire. Uh, so Mary, who had been taking care of basically everything because her husband was a drunk, uh, was Piece running shit. tight on money. As the kids got older and moved out into the world, they always sent her every penny they could spare. Uh, But then around 1876, around the same time that Arthur graduated high school, Charles was finally forced to retire, Uh, a generous move by his bosses that allowed him to keep a small yearly pension. So he wasn't fired. He retired at age Mm, 44.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs)
1: Uh, Mary turned their house into a boarding house, so basically taking lodgers. Um, and a 22-year-old medical student named Brian Charles Waller moved in, and their relationship was uh, questionable. Did you read about this guy at all?
0: Not at all, no. This is a new so one for me.
1: He, mu- I think he came from a family with money, because when Arthur came back from boarding school, his mom wasn't even there. She was visiting Waller's family estate in Yorkshire. So his mom had gone off to stay with this 22-year-old medical student. What? And what, before long when she came back, uh, Waller started paying not just his own rent, but the entire Doyle family's. Oh, so, sugar daddy. You know, burr, 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 we also questions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, his dad, Charles, is still living in the house at this time. So I don't know what the hell was going on there, but it seems super <laughs> weird. <laughs> I mean, good for you, Mary Doyle.
0: Yeah, get it where you can, right? (laughs)
1: Um, Arthur enrolled at the University University of Edinburgh Medical School in 1876, and that is where he met Joseph Bell, who would probably be one of the uh, more influential characters on his career. Um, Bell was a renowned surgeon and diagnostician at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. He was um, Arthur Conan Doyle's absolute favorite professor in medical school. Um, And Joseph Bell thought an observant doctor should be able to learn a lot about a patient before he or she even spoke. So just from looking at them, taking in visual cues. Um, And Doyle worked as an assistant for Bell during his theatrical diagnostics, which this kind of blew my mind. I'd heard these kind of referenced to in that book that I talked about on one of our chill episodes, Anatomy, a Love Story, Uh which was also set in the 1800s, I believe in Edinburgh. So (laughs) coincident. Um, But basically these were like clinics where patients would walk in and then Doyle or another student would herd them into this main room where Bell would examine them in front of students. Um, So he would look at the patient and say something like cobbler, I see, or like what you did at the very beginning of the episode Um, So he'd he'd look at them and say, like, oh, you're a cobbler. And then he would explain to students that he had noticed a worn spot on the inside of the knee of the man's pants where a cobbler would rest his lapstone. And, like, that was enough for him to figure out what this man did for a job. Ah. Um, So, yeah, so he would do, like, kind of over-the-top stuff like that, which made it very entertaining. Uh, He wasn't the only doctor who was a fan of this at the time. Like, there were other doctors who uh, were interested in deduction, um, but Bell was really influential on Doyle. He also paid extra attention to accents and other regional cues, which I thought, uh, was really interesting. And it wasn't just like for show, like some of the observations that he made were really important. It was like, oh, you're from this region. Like they've got factories there with a lot of pollution. And like, if you work there, that might influence your health. So it was very showy, but it had a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bell did this outside of medicine too like making deductions about other train passengers or passers by his kids thought he was a magician because he would look at somebody <laughs> and tell them all about their life story
0: I mean it, um, it does it, it it is a party trick right at the end of the day yeah. it's very much a how are you doing this and and so I, I totally get it like it's it's a very interesting process that they go through of of coming up with these conclusions. But th- I think it's just a matter of like, they know the trick, the, the one or two tricks. And there's always a party trick. There's always one little thing you need to know in order to understand everything, a, a cipher, a, a way of breaking it down. And I think this is just another form of that.
1: I think that's true of some people, but I think you do have to be very well read and well traveled to know this. Like, I don't know shit about accents um, other than mm. like, oh, you're Southern, but I don't know like the difference between a Texas accent and a Florida accent or something. Yeah. Um. So I think you do have to be smart to pull it off. Like convincingly, I've never met anybody like contemporaneously who can do this. Have you?
0: No, not at all. <clears throat> I don't think anybody yeah, cares I wish about I... it nowadays.
1: I wish it was more of a thing because it is it is quite impressive and it sh- it should be more of a thing in medicine I feel like um,
0: um, I think the yeah, reason why other it's, issue. I mean I, I'm sure that there is I'm sure there's something about medical professionals who you know they do go through some sort of training on like hey this is how you identify certain things in people but um, I, I think that it was it was a bigger deal then because it was an emerging science You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I also think and we're going to get into this later in this episode and way more, I think, in a later episode even is that I think that it really kind of became a a, um, taboo or or um, it got a stigma because it is so incredibly close to what uh, psychics and spiritualists and mediums use to convince people that they're talking to the dead
1: that's really interesting I hadn't thought about that but you're totally right it's kind of like you know you could make very vague statements that Uh apply to a lot of people and then be like oh I deduced that about you like
0: yeah absolutely and so uh, you know I, I think that that's I think it's interesting that we have someone like Doyle who is absolutely obsessed with this mythology that it breaks people down and then oh he also ends up being one of the biggest proponents for spiritualism like ever.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And we're gonna get into that, uh his spiritualism later on. Um but just finishing up with Bell, so um Bell was also well-rounded outside of medicine and this was stuff that Doyle knew about him. Like he was passionate about nature, hunting and gardening. He was also a devout Christian. Um, and importantly, he believed that compassion was as important to medicine as a clever diagnosis. So even though he was very like boisterous and, and over the top about his diagnoses, sometimes, um, at his core, like he was, he loved his patients and really wanted to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a good example to set for Doyle. Uh, Doyle took copious notes in Bell's classes, almost like he wanted to transcribe every word the doctor said. And in his memoir later, he wrote, it is no wonder that after the study of such a character I used and amplified his methods when in later life I tried to build up a scientific detective who solved cases on his own merits and not through the folly of the criminal. So he himself acknowledged that Bell would become a huge influence for the character of Sherlock Holmes.
0: Yeah, of course he would. Nobody can look at Bell and be like, Oh, is is this maybe the guy that you basically? <laughs> like, no, that's one hundred percent him. Absolutely yep um
1: did you have any other thoughts on bell before we moved along
0: um no i mean they they kind of they talked about the the what it was like probably for um for conan doyle being in his class for the first time and and seeing you know like the 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 room where they're they usually do operations and all that happened is they bring in someone and this guy just kind of breaks the person down. Is like, he's got mm-hmm. this red clay. So he's from this area. He has smoke. So he does. A, and, and like, just, I mean, you would, I, I believe anybody would, would find that incredibly amusing and enlightening. I, I think it's something that just, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to go, to blame Conan Doyle for being like, this is the greatest thing and this needs to be a book, you know?
1: It's also a good trait for a writer to have. I feel like too, like observing the world and, Coming up with backstories for people based on these minute details that you notice. Like, that's a good exercise for anyone. Like, I feel like the next time I'm sitting on a train or something, I should look around at the people around me and try to figure things out about their lives.
0: My cousin and I, I already
1: do to some extent, but
0: my cousin and I, when we were first starting the process of being writers and, and trying to understand what we were doing, we would go to the airport and we would just point to people. Um, for the other person to kind of write a couple of paragraphs really quickly off of a quick observation and so you learn to do that you learn to go okay they're they're wearing this they're walking this way they look this way so this is what I think that they are and and it it is a really good way of of creating character very quickly but that's Mm -hmm. a completely different thing that's just observation really right like that's there is deduction in there but what he's doing is making grand leaps in logic that borderline become psychic abilities right it's it's like the (laughs) show psych where it's like nobody can figure this out but if you're if you know the trick if you're observant enough and if you have enough information uh, available to you anyone can make these jumps in logic he had to like know he would say and stuff like oh i know The rent cost of this particular building that's, you know, three blocks from my house. So I know (laughs) that you pay this much, which means you make this much, which means you do this. Like he had to know that information. He couldn't just pull that shit out of his head and be like, oh, maybe they do. So like there's there's an intelligence there. There's a capacity for um, being able to achieve this that I, I think that. Conan Doyle found incredibly intoxicating like it it's proof that you are logical and smart and he just started to deny the faith of his family so I think he's in that place where he's like I need to find the logic in the world around me um so I, I think that's probably why this captured him so much
1: you know what else he found incredibly intoxicating women Uh, No, I was gonna say gelsiminum. (laughs) What did you did you read about in about two years into his college career, um, how he experimented with this pain depressant drug called gelsiminum?
0: No, nothing. Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah. So, Arthur Conan Doyle apparently had no self-preservation skills, which we're going to see later on in his life, too. Um, But, yeah, so this drug that was being studied as a pain suppressant had mixed results, and doctors reported many deaths from overdose among patients they gave it to. So, Arthur decided he wanted to try it out on himself and record the effects. So, he administered this... I know, right? He administered this drug to himself in increasing dosages, trying to figure out how much of it would cause an overdose and what the symptoms would be. Rather than draw it out over, like, weeks or months, he did this basically for one week and increased the amount daily. He started on a Monday and had exceeded the amount thought to be fatal by Wednesday. What
0: the hell? Uh,
1: And then on Friday, he administered twice the dose believed to be fatal, kept it going until Sunday... When his headache and diarrhea became so severe that he had to stop the experiment.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, he
1: basically should have died.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been he... doing this thing, and it's, I think it's getting a little too much. The diarrhea is a bit much for me to take at this point. So, you know, I think I might, also... I might slow it down.
1: <laughs> he also had a, a weak pulse that he recorded, uh, but still steady. So, you know, he, he survived it. He Jeez wrote up the experiment. Me. And sent it to the British Medical Journal, and it appeared in the September 1879 edition as a letter to the editor.
0: My God, this crazy man! <laughs> what, what a stupid thing to do! Like there, I know. there were drugs back then. People knew about drugs.
1: Yeah, but they. This one was relatively not understood. But I think one of the important things that um, the author of this biography noted that Conan Doyle left out was that like. I don't think he included how healthy he was. Like he was a pretty robust young man Yeah. taking this. So it might not have worked the same for children or like women or the elderly. No. Um, so he might've been a little, little better positioned to take more than twice the uh, thought to be lethal limit.
0: Yeah. I mean that, and that's, that's true. It, everybody's chemistry is different, right? So you can't mm-hmm. always be like, this is exactly how it works because it worked this way on me or on this sp- specific person. Right. So, um, I mean, but it's the 1800s. They're doing all kinds of crazy shit. They're, they're bringing people back. Like, you know, you got resurrection men fucking <laughs> pulling people out of the ground just so that they can do experiments on people. It's not like nowadays where they're like, yeah, um, there's a way we do things and we got a system in place, and they're like, "Fuck it, let's cut his arm off and put some, put a plant on it, and let's see if that plant grows into his arm. And then he's got a plant arm. Let's see it. Come on, everybody!" And everyone's like, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Oh, let's all do that." And they all like golf clap for each other, and then it's like, <laughs> "Nope, he died because you fucking cut his arm off and put a plant up in his arm. That's how people die. It's called germs, you dumbasses." <laughs>
1: Yeah, so Arthur was very much a product of his time and the uh, the medical field at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, so he got that that published as a letter to the editor around the same year. Um I think his first fictional story was also anonymously published um in a journal. It was called The Mystery of Sassa Valley. Ooh. Um and apparently anonymous publishing was Just starting to go out of fashion as he was coming onto the writing scene, publishers were realizing that a famous author's name on the front of their magazine could lure readers Mm -hmm. and um, that anonymity had sometimes disguised slanderous or otherwise shady writers, so there was a bit of a risk to it. Mm. Um, Writers were also easy to get credit, but I think quite a few of his early short stories were published anonymously um, while he was still doing medical school. Kind of like uh, Michael Crichton, that episode that Devonnie and I did while you were gone. (laughs) Another doctor who was writing and becoming quite well known on the side.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a logical leap to take from like a a doctor going, yeah, I want to write these stories and then experimenting and seeing the world and observing. And then they have to do a lot of writing as a doctor, right? Like they got to take a lot of notes and shit. So it makes sense. You do, you but have... I.
1: Th- it's a very different style. Um. So I think it's interesting when you see somebody who's got that very technical, analytical mind who can also write creatively.
0: creatively. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it is a different style. But I think that it's not too hard for someone to kind of combine those two ideas into, or like those two styles of writing into one.
1: Yeah. And the um, experiences you get from being a doctor like you meet a lot of people you learn a lot about uh, a lot of different subjects so I think that probably helps as well
0: yeah absolutely um
1: and then in 1880 he took a short break from school to work as a doctor on a whaling ship it was uh pretty good pay and he really wanted a new experience you can kind of see he's got that like wanderlust uh (laughs) a little bit of ADD Mm -hmm. wanting to go from experience to experience Um, He didn't have a ton to do on the ship in a lot of ways. I guess the doctor was expected to be the captain's like friend and companion just to keep him company Um, because the captain was always like an upper class dude and the crew members were all lower class. So they didn't hang out together, I guess. It was very segregated.
0: (laughs) Those those damn ship high school cliques.
1: I know it's very, uh, very clicky. But Arthur found that he enjoyed the company of the crew just as much as the captain's Um, and since he was like an avid boxer too, like that was one of his, his main hobbies. Mm -hmm. He, um, soon like earned some cred with the crew members because he boxed the steward and gave him a black eye. So they, uh, you know, they no longer looked at him as just like the college educated, like snob. They were like, Oh, he can hang out with us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this guy's dope.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's gonna, Um,
0: he's gonna break your jaw and then fix it, bro.
1: Dudes are weird. I don't get it um he graduated with his bachelor of medicine in 1881 um and apparently back then like a bachelor's degree was enough to be a doctor whereas now you need like eight years of school so he he was allowed to go out into the world and practice medicine um in the meantime like his family life it's not exactly clear what his dad had been up to in the five-ish years since being retired quote unquote but by early 1881, his dad had actually been admitted to a home for drunks.
0: Oh, um, shit. Finally caught up to him. Yeah.
1: He Since Charles doesn't appear to have been charged with any crimes, he would have had to actually consent to being um, institutionalized um, under the Habitual Drunkards Act of 1879, which is just the best name for a law ever.
0: Did, uh, did uh, Charles Dickens have something to do with that?
1: <laughs> that would have been a... a a cool way to get him involved in writing laws
0: i just he didn't charles dickens was like all about that though wasn't he he remember he was like super weird about like everybody needs to follow the laws uh, except for me uh i'm better than everybody
1: i do slightly remember that which is ironic considering charles dickens's family was kind of like victimized by the laws of their time
0: yeah that was like a whole thing we talked about (laughs) in the episode where it's like what what's happening right now? He's. He... I don't
1: think Charles Dickens wrote that law, but that would be an interesting tie-in if he did.
0: The uh, the between Lewis and Lovecraft cinematic universe gets a little bit bigger.
1: <laughs> so Charles Doyle uh, apparently tried to escape the institution quite often. Uh, he developed a reputation as amiable but troubled. <laughs> and Arthur stayed mostly quiet about his family drama, which makes sense because it seems like he was very self-conscious about stuff like that. But he did write to his sister, quote, we have packed Papa off to a health resort. A mm, health resort.
0: A health resort. Yes. Yes. <sighs>
1: So, freshly out of college, uh, worried about his future and needing money, he served another three months as the doctor on the ship called the SS Mayumba, um, which was a decrepit steamer taking cargo and passengers from England to Africa. This trip was like, he should have died again. um, Here, (laughs) Uh, A hurricane struck the ship just after it departed and it sank one ship nearby and flooded Doyle's cabin. Then when they made it to Africa, many men, including Doyle, got a horrible fever. At least one died, and Doyle was out for several days.
0: Yeah, dude had uh, he had to he had to basically take care of himself. At yeah, that point.
1: it's like the doctor's sick. Sorry guys, <laughs> you, like you'll have to wait.
0: No, no, no. yeah, like uh, no, uh, Conan Doyle had to had to medically take care of himself. Yeah, because he's like he gets the same thing and so he just like lays up in the bed and he's like i know everything that's happening to me so i need to deal with it and normally other people are the ones that do this but now i have to do it to myself like that's that's terrifying to me like legitimately i would i would not be okay if if my health relied on me to take care of myself <laughs> i'm dead i'm a dead man Guaranteed. Luckily, this
1: is the same man who intentionally overdosed for like a week. So <sighs> That's he's right. used to taking care of himself.
0: He's an idiot. I forgot about that.
1: <laughs> and despite all of these calamities and what seemed like a pretty uh, doomed trip, he once he recovered, he went on a dive underwater and swam along the ship as it neared a former slave fort.
0: Mm. When
1: he got out, he saw a shark fin sticking out of the water.
0: He was like, oh, that's great. Oh, hey, look at that. I just swam with sharks. <laughs> totally cool. Um, and then, let's
1: see. So the ship uh, didn't sink miraculously. It made it back to Liverpool in January 1882, And in March and April of that year, uh, the British Journal of Photography published his two-part article and photos titled, On the Slave Coast with a Camera. He had also previously published a series of photos in the same journal from the Isle of May called, After Cormorants with a Camera. So photography was also among his many, many hobbies. Of course it was. Um, And this is just another example of how, like, he, even though he's best known for his fiction... He published a lot of nonfiction and articles and stuff throughout his life too he was super super well-rounded um and then he applied to numerous medical positions but was routinely denied so frustrated with this the now 23 year old that's it 23 Mm -hmm. moved to portsmouth and launched his own private practice he rented a house bought a few pieces of furniture and a red lamp which was the uh, sign for physician in england Yes, uh red light is for prostitutes and for doctors.
0: <laughs> is that thing? Uh, I didn't know that red lights were back then. I, apparent,
1: uh, I don't know if they were the prostitute sign back then, but apparently a red lamp was the sign for a doctor.
0: Yeah, that uh, I knew, but I didn't I know I know that, you know, like the red light district you, you got nowadays is a prostitute thing, but I didn't know if it was like back then.
1: I'm not sure when that emerged, so maybe the red lamp preceded it. Hmm. Uh, So he opened up to the public and after about a week, patience began to trickle in. He was really talented at self-promotion and meeting new people. Uh, He enjoyed collecting anecdotes about the colorful characters he met, using them in his letters to his family and in the fictional stories that he was increasingly starting to write. Um, He wasn't very good at uh collecting payment for his services though like a lot of times he had a lot of very poor clients come in and they couldn't always pay as much as it cost for the medicine to treat them so mm-hmm. it, he wasn't making a lot of money.
0: You know, it, at first he actually wasn't really super great at at getting the clientele and networking. He would he would set up and he would wait at his um residence where he's he's practicing And he would just hang out there because he's his hope is eventually someone will see the red lamp and be like, oh, I need help. And he's like, all right, I'm here to help. And and he's just basically got office hours all the time. Um, And Mm -hmm. he actually writes about this process where he realized for a doctor to be um, successful, they have to leave the office and they have to go and play golf and go to luncheons and charity events they have to be active not being a doctor just being out in the world talking to highfalutin people who will eventually be like hey you're a pretty cool guy maybe i want your fingers up my butthole that sounds great and um and (laughs) you like how i put that right and then uh um And eventually you'll, you'll get your patrons, you'll get your clientele coming in. And he says, he's like the cost of, of not making money off of the three people that come in during the day so that in a week you can have, you know, 20 people coming in. Like that's, that's how a doctor has to work. And it's interesting that he learns that lesson the hard way. I mean, he, he sits around making no money for a couple of days and then eventually starts to learn. Oh shit! I need to get more uh, active in society so that I can make money.
1: Yeah, and and like you said, like even though he seems very confident and he's able to do that networking and go out and play golf or whatever with people, um, he was also very sensitive to the way that people might perceive him. Like he grew a mustache to try to look older. Um, and he snuck out under cover of darkness to polish the brass nameplate in front of his office right because apparently established doctors had assistants perform that task and he didn't have an assistant so he had to do it himself.
0: yeah. Isn't that um, nuts? So yeah I, like that makes you, me feel for him a little bit. <laughs> you have to deal with like all of that just because you want to be a doctor. you want to help people so you have to like go out of your way to like oh, I gotta clean it up, but nobody can see me doing it. Yep.
1: After a while, his nine-year-old brother came to live with him, I think because the the family was kind of poor. Like, he he brought his brother to live with him to kind of help his mom out. And I think his brother started doing some of those tasks for him.
0: Mm. All right. That's Uh, good.
1: And during his first year, Arthur only made 154 pounds as a doctor. That would be around $16,000 U.S. today. Um. It was too low to require tax payment, which he noted on his tax forms. Then he got a note back from the government saying, quote, most unsatisfactory. He wrote, I entirely agree under that and mailed it back. Um, According to this biography, his sense of humor got him audited, but it turned out all right. He didn't get in trouble.
0: (laughs) Yeah, could you imagine the irs be like um this is not good and you're like i agree it's I not agree. good i should make more money and not be talking to you guys
1: i would love to try that i don't think it would go very well with those like eighty seven thousand new irs agents they're hiring <laughs> um then in 1885 he officially earned his md um so above what was needed to actually be a doctor. I I don't know if he actually had to like go back to school for this. I know he wrote a thesis to get it. So maybe that was just something you did like on your own time. Hmm. Uh, but he was officially a medical doctor, not just a, a person with a bachelor of medicine. Right. Um. And then again, around this time he started getting more and more into spiritualism, which we're going to discuss more in depth later on. Uh, but basically this is just the belief that the human... S- Spirit survives death like ghosts and other supernatural phenomenon. Uh, he read dozens of books about it and attended a spiritualist lecture, although it seems like at the time he was still like kind of unconvinced. He was just very interested in reading more about it.
0: Mm-hmm um that's how it then, always starts it's fine i'm not i'm not really into it i just i'm just and i'm curious i'm just curious I'm dabbling. About, you know <laughs> i just want to know what their thought process is so that i can i can argue with it a little bit more you know what i'm saying <laughs> if you have friends who are saying this about anything just know in a year they will be a part of that group so
1: <laughs> i think that's oversimplified but I, I uh, get it.
0: It's literally how I got you to be a podcaster. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to reevaluate <sighs> everything now.
0: <laughs> I'm just interested to see what Tyler says about this podcasting thing. I'm not sure what it's. And th- two years later, It sounds here you really
1: are. interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: In early 1885, when he was about 26 years old, a friend and colleague talked with Arthur about a young patient named Jack Hawkins who suffered from seizures that seemed to be getting increasingly um, severe. He met with the patient and the rest of his family, a widow named Emily Hawkins and her daughter, Mary Louisa, who was nicknamed Tui, because people always had weird nicknames back then, like Dickie and Tui. (laughs) Um, As Jack... Got worse, Arthur offered the spare bedroom at his medical office so that he could attend to the young man himself whenever it was necessary. Unfortunately, Jack soon passed away, and the police actually interrogated Arthur about it, Mm -hmm. Um, but his doctor friend backed him up and was like, nah, this dude was actually super
0: sick. We're living Um, in an era right now where doctors will let people die so that they can experiment on their bodies. Like... it's insane how how the the medical profession this field was established and also still establishing itself at that point Mm -hmm. and that's why you have people who have to take an oath to say i will not i will do no harm to my patients because back then people would do harm they'd be like oh you got um a, a, a sprained ankle. Guess we're just gonna have to get put leeches on you to see how that helps it. because we, we got to oh experiment. God. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. Um, I think we know what the fucking leeches aren't gonna help a sprained ankle, but I think we can go ahead and make that assumption right now, bud. I don't. Know. It just it's insane. Like the resurrection men, the whole field. It's why we have frankenstein it's why we have the story of frankenstein because that is what they like she was writing to medical professionals and people of the world and saying this is what we're going to end up with we're going to end up with people Mm -hmm. who are going to create monsters if we don't get some more stability in our in our world
1: yeah i think that's a good point and it's um it it's why it was especially important that bell was such like a a good influence on Arthur Conan Doyle like he he was very moral and actually wanted to help people and not just like advance science. Yeah. Which is great, but not when you're um hurting healthy people to do it.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. So leave healthy so people alone.
1: Yeah, so leave healthy people or like don't <laughs> make sick people worse when you know it's going to make them worse like Yeah. I don't know, it seems like common sense, but but I think you see that a lot um, with doctors at the time, just getting carried away with like, oh, we got to learn more and advance the the science, which kind of makes sense. But it's like, bruh, uh, have some morals. <laughs> bruh. Bruh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on August 6th, 1885, four and a half months after Jack Hawkins died, Arthur married his sister, Tui. Uh, yeah. So within six months of knowing each other. they. It, yeah. I guess it worked out. Which. <laughs>
0: This is a common theme for a good old Conan Doyle.
1: <laughs> um, they had two children together, Mary and Kingsley, and Tui had a nice inheritance from her father, especially since several of her siblings had died already, you know, taken out the competition.
0: Seems a little convenient, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe Tui was killing them, oh my god. <laughs> yeah,
0: oh, it, you, wait, yeah. mom, you're saying that if, I, if all of my brothers and sisters die, I get all of your money? Hmm. interesting
1: (laughs) so because she brought some money to the relationship for the first time Arthur was kind of um, financially stable and he was freed up to write more Uh, his short stories had already been gaining some traction among publishers but he felt that he needed a novel and began to imagine how Joseph Bell would fare as a detective Mm -hmm. so now we're going to get to Sherlock Holmes do you have any final medical thoughts or, or shall we just dive in here
0: I will say this before we get started. I think it's really interesting that Sherlock Holmes was created because the the author was reimagining a doctor as a detective. And then we get a show like House where the creator went, what if Sherlock Holmes was a doctor?
1: That's really interesting.
0: That i is, didn't know
1: that was the uh, basis for house but that makes a lot of, i haven't really watched that much house i know of
0: it it is 100 the basis for house house is sherlock holmes and uh the other guy that works there i can't remember his name he's supposed to be watson and it's it's a whole medical procedural show that is a, based around the idea that sherlock holmes is is a doctor but the whole My mind point just of, exploded. The whole point of Sherlock Holmes is that it's what if a doctor was a detective?
1: <laughs> That's insane, right? Okay. So so when he was creating Sherlock Holmes, um he began to envision his detective as an awe-inspiring genius who shocked the world with his deductions. But he thought that a character like that might seem smug narrating his own victories and that telling the story from the point of view of, of the detective would give away the ending too soon. Because, mm-hmm. like, if you're in the head of someone that smart, you're just going to know what's going to happen. Right, yeah. So he came up with a sidekick, a physician like himself. So he made Watson the doctor and Sherlock Holmes the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biographer notes that um, it was really similar to Edgar Allan Poe's, uh, is it pronounced Dupine or Dupine?
0: I'm pretty sure it's I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's peen. It probably is.
1: It's French. But
0: Um, peen sounds way better.
1: To those mysteries, um, which were thought to be the first detective fiction stories. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, I think he was alive at the same time as Arthur Conan Doyle, but was writing. He he had risen to prominence before Arthur Conan Doyle. So um, he grew up reading his stories. Um And in his stories, there's a narrator who meets this great detective in Paris. And the narrator is the one telling the story similar to how he crafted Sherlock Holmes. Gotcha. Um, And the character of Holmes demonstrates a lot of Arthur's aversion to conventionality. Um, He's self-employed. He brags about his own genius. He's not modest at all. He disses the police detectives all the time <laughs> and he straight up uses cocaine too which is a lot I feel like they toned him down a little bit in some of the Sherlock Holmes adaptations I didn't realize um like how like not over the top because he is over the top but he like the cocaine thing was so surprising to me I'm like we're in the 1800s and you've got your detective on drugs and like out of commission sometimes
0: they put cocaine in, in soda it's fine it's not it's a it's a fine substance we don't need to make a big deal out of it
1: (laughs) true you guys are being so cocaine back in coca-cola
0: yeah look guys it's it's natural okay it comes from the (laughs) earth it's got a lot of medicinal properties that we can utilize if we want to do it the right way and not just be prudes about it
1: okay Side note: I've been advocating for this forever. I want the coca plant to be legal. <laughs> but
0: do you, do you really? I
1: digress. Do I really? do, because um, I was talking to this girl um, who she used to be a bartender at the backstop actually, which is like right near your studio.
0: Yeah, right. Um,
1: but she was talking about how she went to, I want to say, Peru, uh, maybe Bolivia or some somewhere in South America, and. She was drinking the tea there because she loves tea. And then after, like, five days, she hadn't slept at all. And she was like, what the hell is going on?
0: (laughs) And somebody was
1: like, that tea is made from coca leaves. And it's just, like, when it's the plant, it's a strong... um, It's, like, basically coffee on crack or on cocaine. (laughs) Um, Or it has also been used a lot as, like, a local anesthetic. Like, they would chew it up and put it, like... On your teeth to do dental work or something so when it's not powder it's a lot better
0: so wow, that's my advocacy
1: so for cocaine legalization as the plant
0: hannah is a coke addict this is a new thing that we've brought you to the show
1: you can't even have the plant here so i've never got to try the leaves but okay, I wait, think it should I, be legal. This is
0: an important conversation. Everyone, shut up. This is an important conversation. Hannah, <laughs> what is your what is your your defining line? Are you you're obviously you're willing to try this cocaine tea, right? Yes. Are you willing to snort cocaine to see how that is?
1: i I would. Um but my problem is I'm paranoid so I don't trust that like the cocaine I would get wouldn't have fentanyl in it so Yeah but like
0: but we're talking like the purest shit from
1: Peru, If it was apparently. guaranteed. Yeah, I have no um I have no qualms about that. I feel like I would actually like cocaine whereas I don't like um marijuana that much cuz it just makes me sleepy. I really <laughs> want to be amped up. <laughs> so yes, I would do coke, okay. but I don't because I'm scared. Of dying and looking like an idiot. Of
0: being another Mac Miller guy. Um, Yeah. So, so if we have listeners who can send you the coca leaves for tea.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, my God. You're going to get me raided by the FBI or something. (laughs) Or the ATF. Like, I think it's so stupid that the plant is illegal. And I feel like someday, like marijuana, it won't be. We'll be like, no, it's just a plant. Like, we're not going to ban people from growing it and making tea out of it. Like... That's way less harmful than cocaine. But don't send me coca leaves because I don't want to go to jail.
0: <laughs> if you just get mysterious teas in the mail.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be so scary. like somebody just sends me a package of leaves and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm gonna make a tea, out of, this. Make tea
0: out of this. <laughs>
1: Arthur Conan Doyle would.
0: Yeah, oh absolutely he would.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so that was quite the dig uh, digression
0: am not, i even doing words all digressions yet? need to be about ty ty the bible guys. sometimes we need to get a, <laughs> get into cocaine hannah's addiction get
1: a real <laughs> cocaine hannah <laughs> hot takes with hannah cocaine should be legal
0: yeah they <laughs> legalize i'm i'm hannah and i approve this message <laughs> <laughs> legalize cocaine
1: um so bringing it back to arthur conan doyle <laughs> He he finished and mailed a study in Scarlet to publisher after publisher in 1886. Um, he just got tons of rejections or straight up ignored. Finally, he sent it to Ward, Locke & Company, which specialized in sensational popular novels. Uh, an overworked editor took it home to his wife, who loved it and deduced that it was written by a doctor, but that nice. he was a born novelist. So in October of that year, they offered him 25 pounds for the copyright, He agonized over this decision because he really wanted royalties, but this company was, like, pretty sketch, and, um, they were, like, very tight-fisted with their money. Mm. So, eventually, he agreed. He was like, I just want to get a novel out there. Um, it was published in the 1887 issue of Beaton's Christmas Annual, um, which was a super famous journal. It had previously published Mark Twain stories. Oh, shit. Um, Yeah, and it was the, I believe it was the cover story of this um, journal, and it was advertised ahead of publication as a story about a, quote, supremely ingenious detective, and they said it should be the talk of every Christmas gathering throughout the land, but they misspelled his name as Arthur Condon Doyle. Oh, no! (laughs) When it came out, uh, it sold out tens of thousands of copies within weeks. One reviewer said it was fine, but wouldn't exist without Poe or other authors, um and i think oh that reviewer said the author was anonymous which he wasn't the next review was nicer but spelled his name conair doyle and finally a review in the scotsman got his name right and said the book would be a hit which it was um and then the next year 1888 ward lock and company wanted to publish it as a standalone book uh and doyle got them to let his dad draw some of the illustrations for it which was cool but the company never paid what doyle demanded in fact i'm not sure if they actually paid him at all for his dad's illustrations. They were real assholes. Yeah. Um, but at least his name was on the spine of a book, like a, a book by itself, standalone novel. Um, so that felt good for him. Yeah. Uh, the next year, his career was really taking off. Uh, some reviewers said he had leapt to the front rank of novelists. Um, his dad took notes in re- of the reviews that his son was getting in his sketchbook, like such a proud papa, um, but he also felt sad that his own talent was withering while he was confined in basically an insane asylum.
0: Yeah, that's so, sad. That
1: made me so sad. Um, 1890, uh, The Sign of the Four, the second Sherlock Holmes story came out in England and U.S. issues of some magazine, and it was later reprinted broadly. Um. He had another very popular weekly installment um, publication that was The Surgeon of Gaster Fell, and it was about a family looking after their troubled father, so a lot of parallels to his own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw he closed his medical practice and briefly moved to Vienna, Austria to study optho- ophthalmology. And then <laughs> ophthalmology. when he returned... I don't know why that's so hard to say. It's because the pH... <laughs> Um in 1891 he opened a new medical practice in London so the family moved from Scotland to England. Um basically by this point he was publishing multiple novels and short stories a year. Not going to get into all of them because he wrote around 200 uh, novels, short stories and other publications throughout his life.
0: I mean he wrote um, he wrote 60 Sherlock Holmes books in in his career and that was like 1895 96 all the way to uh 1930 so that's a a total of like 25 years of writing sherlock holmes he wrote 60 that's yeah that's like he was two or three a
1: year and he was doing this while like working full-time as a doctor basically
0: yeah Um, and writing other stories stories yeah
1: (laughs) stories (laughs) So, yeah, in the early 90s, he was making enough money to bring his sister, Connie, to live with his family, and she typed up his stories. Uh, He finally got an agent who negotiated 200 pounds for six home stories in the Strand magazine, so that was more than he had made in his entire first year as a doctor. Um, And then they negotiated 300 for the next six. Um, While he was writing, he was knocked off his feet by influenza, and this was the same disease that had killed one of his sisters three years prior— so when he recovered, he sold his medical tools and switched to writing full time. He was like, nope, no more doctoring.
0: Yeah. This is what I really love." I got, I got stories to tell. I gotta get this done, yo.
1: Yeah. Um. Interestingly, in 1893, he killed off Sherlock Holmes in one of his books and was like, "I guess gonna be done with it." Um. And you had mentioned earlier that he he ended up hating this character he had created or or this story can you kind of explain that a little bit because i didn't see much about that
0: well it's not that he hated it i guess he just got tired of of writing i mean he wrote so many stories with this character and it's not it's not like he's like he was growing up at a young age like i've got this great story Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) i'm trying to do like um and a scottish accent but it's just a shash um i've got this great story um he basically, it's just like, okay, this is one character that I wrote. I have other stories that I want to write, so I'm, I'm not going to write that anymore. So he straight up is like, all right, I'm just going to kill him off. And people lost their shit. They're like, what the fuck <laughs> is wrong with you? No, you don't get to do that. It'd be like, it's like when Marvel killed, you know, Captain America or DC tried to kill Batman off and everyone's like, okay, yeah, but when, when are they coming back though? Like we all <laughs> know they're coming back. Don't try to play with us, Conan O'Doyle. <laughs> I still say O'Doyle, Conan Doyle. O'Doyle. Um, like we we know you still have Sherlock stories. We love the Sherlock stories. Don't play with us like this. And so eventually he's like, yeah, okay, I'll write another one. you write Basker. He wrote the Hounds of Baskerville, which ultimately is like I believe the most popular of all of the Sherlock stories. And yeah, the- and
1: that was like eight or nine years after he had originally tried to kill him off. So he yeah. got him back then. It was a long break.
0: And then he did a story that was like officially like, okay, he's back. Here he is.
1: Yeah. Here you guys go.
0: Yeah. Fucking Um, jerks.
1: Oh. Um, (laughs) And then just to like close out on a little bit of family stuff. So his dad died of epileptic seizure in 1893, the same year he killed off Sherlock Holmes. Um so that was very sad and maybe explained a lot of his, his issues that he had, even while in um, the asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving on to his kind of later career, in October of 1899, so when he would have been like 40, I think, um, a colonial war broke out between England and South Africa. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle really wanted to go, I assume, to like fight. But he was put on a waiting list, and in the meantime, one of his friends offered him a job supervising a field hospital in Blomfontein, South Africa, which, do you recognize that town? That's where J.R.R. Tolkien was born seven years previously. What? Yeah. I I recognize that. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, which author was born there? I'm like, I remember this. Yeah, it was J.R.R. Tolkien.
0: So so Um, Conan Doyle's just, like, hanging out with baby Tolkien? Like...
1: (laughs) I feel I can't remember when exactly the Tolkien family went back to England, but I think he was super young. So they might not have overlapped.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, small world. Uh, when he returned from the war, he wrote two books related to it, um, one of which defended English conduct during the war. Uh, apparently, there was like international condemnation of Britain's role in the conflict. Um, and so his book, In Defense of England, led to him being knighted as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in 1902. Which I I always kinda like assumed in my brain that he was knighted for his success as an author. So it was interesting to me to find out the real reason.
0: I mean Which it was kind of just propaganda. It, yeah, it is his success as an author to be able to say, No, no, yeah. England's great
1: <laughs> Not yeah, I I assumed it was for Sherlock Holmes, but nope.
0: <laughs> no. Um, no, it's not Sherlock. <laughs>
1: Also, during the early 1900s, he unsuccessfully tried to become more directly involved in politics. He ran for Parliament twice, uh, but was not elected either time. Uh, and then, yeah, so in, in 1901, Sherlock Holmes came back in the Hound of the Baskervilles. And then in 1903, an American publisher offered him a large amount of money, I don't know how much, to bring Holmes back. So after mm-hmm. that, more than 30 new Holmes stories were published Um up until march of 1927
0: yeah you don't get Um, to kill him off bro
1: no there's too much money to be made here
0: that is the play though right to be able to be like you know oh here's this character that everybody loves i'm not going to write him anymore and everyone's like no but you need to he's like no i'm not gonna do it fuck you i'm not gonna do it anymore (laughs) Like, but oh, but we need it so bad. We gotta have it. And it's like, no, fuck you. I'm not gonna do it. And then the company's like, hey, we'll we'll pay you like a lot of money to go ahead and bring him back. And he's like, mm, yeah, all right, I'll do it for money.
1: You're <laughs> like, I've suddenly decided there's more stories to be told.
0: But you, but you understand why he needed that money for real, though, right?
1: Why his cocaine so, habit?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Uh, So he, he's at this point, he's like diving into spirituality. He's really getting into the ghosts and the spirits of shit. Um, And so he like, he's a full convert at this point. He is like, he's doing it. He's fighting medical issues so that he can go on these trips and, and see stuff and experience things. He's, he's got his wife involved now, all kinds of shit. And he brings Holmes back. Because he needs to pay for his missionary trips to go and and spread the good word of uh, Jesus oh. ghost or something, and um, and so yeah, he the only reason why Holmes came back is so, is to fund his trips to go tell people about ghosts.
1: That's very interesting. Okay, I did not know that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I guess, uh, you know, if you're a spiritualist, that's very admirable that you donate all of your money to the cause.
0: <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, what do those trips actually look like? It's not really donating. It's more like, hey, we're going on this trip to go have sales. Yeah, it's probably and... just fun. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just giant orgies and shit. I don't know.
1: Oh, yikes. <laughs> well, I mean, um, is this
0: around the time of Aleister Crowley? No, Aleister Crowley was born in, in like the early 1900s so
1: yeah so uh, around the time he was born um but yeah so his wife tui died of tuberculosis in 1906 very sad uh but within a year he had married gene Lecky, uh yeah. whom he had apparently known since 19 or er, since 1897 and he had been in love with
0: yeah yeah no, it's not very sad. It's not, ooh, ooh, my wife is dead. Oh, I'm di- she's dying in my arms. <laughs> I mean, he did she did die in his arms, but ooh, ooh, I'm so sad. It's more like, hey, can you hurry the fuck up? I got this other chick waiting for me. Let's <laughs> let's move it along here, lady. I've already that's found your replacement. But it is. That's what it is. He found this other chick, and he and sh- his wife is dying of tuberculosis, and he's all like, oh, don't worry, babe. As soon as the other one's out the door. You're next. And that's what happened. He was in love with another woman while his wife was dying. And he was just waiting for her to die. And then a year later, he gets married again. That's it's Frank Herbert I'm not all thinking... over again. Except Frank <laughs> Herbert wasn't in love with his assistant, as far as we know. No, he met somebody later was... on. Yeah, he met her, and then they got married immediately. That's different. I mean, it's still stupid and still sucks. You're a fickle person. But at least it's it's... It's so dumb. Stop picking up other chicks while your wife is dying.
1: Yeah, and I don't really know how how they met or like what their relationship was like before that. Um, all I saw was that this woman was a close friend of his mother and sister, so I assume he met her through through them. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, and they had three children together: Dennis, Adrian, and Jean. So he had five children total. Um. And then just before we get into like the the very end of his life, um I thought it was super interesting he also like dabbled in some PI work and like criminal justice stuff. Did you see that um he helped like get two men who were wrongly convicted exonerated?
0: No, I didn't see this he at all. He just like
1: he got interested in their cases. One of them was um a, a lawyer who had gone to Prison because he was accused of writing threatening letters and mutilating horses and ponies, like killing them. Oh uh, and it took, it looks like he was framed. Like, there's whole stories about this. I, I don't want to go too in depth, but basically, Arthur Conan Doyle saw this and was like, this looks super suspicious. And apparently, he got a hold of evidence and was like, oh, the razor the police claimed he used uh, contained not a trace of blood. Uh, the mud on his clothes was of a completely different type of soil. Um And yeah, so he, he ended up getting this dude out of jail. And then in a second case, it was a guy who was convicted of beating a woman to death. <gasps> and he wrote extensively about this case and ended up paying most of the costs for this man, Oscar Slater's successful appeal in 1928. So yeah, he wrote about a detective and then he became a detective.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. He's a, um, he's a uh, good old Matlock.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I really like that he did that. I think that's super cool that he took it upon himself to uh, right some wrongs. Because um, I think, you know, obviously he don't er, donated most of his money and time to spiritualism later in his life, which, mm-hmm. you know, you can say what you want about that. But I think criminal justice and, like, getting innocent people out of prison is a very noble uh, <laughs> goal. So I'm like, that's the one I identify with the most.
0: That's that's the thing I'll I'll hold on to with yeah. this guy. I mean, I do think that that is genuinely a good thing. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with his spiritualism. Uh, maybe there's a part of it that I think is a bit nefarious in that I think that it's a bunch of shit. Um, and he got into it because... He, I don't know. I don't know. That's something that we're going to talk about at a later time. Um, but I think that, you know, from what, everything that I've read, it doesn't seem like he was a bad guy outside of him having a wife on the ready for his dead wife. Like outside of that, I don't see anything that he's done as like, wow, I don't like that.
1: No, he does seem like a good dude. I think, um, in terms of spiritualism, the only thing that could be like a little, little less, uh, moral would be some people have claimed that he was behind the hoax of the piltdown man which was like a fossil discovered in 1912 that kind of fooled the scientific community for decades um i don't think it's ever been proved that he was behind it but people speculated that he um, created this hoax in revenge for the approach taken by many scientists to spiritualism he was like you guys like shit on spiritualism so i'm gonna trick you which seems like very in line with his personality
0: I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's a pretty <laughs> badass move, and I would not really fault him for doing that.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, even that's not super bad, but he does he does seem like a, a pretty good dude, knock on wood. Uh, I didn't see much about his relationship with his children, but hopefully that was good.
0: Usually no news is good news, normally, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. So... Um,
1: But unfortunately, all lives must come to an end. Um,
0: And man did his come to an end. Holy shit did his come to an end.
1: Quite dramatic. So, like, he was standing in the hallway at home one day and his family or someone just found him clutching his chest dramatically Mm -hmm. uh, on July 7th, 1930. He apparently told his wife, Jean, you are wonderful, and then died from a heart attack.
0: That's crazy, man.
1: Those are some cool last words, though, like... That was yeah. nice of him to think of her. Uh He was 71 years old. So actually if a, a decently long life.
0: All right, Hannah, you've done too much cocaine. Your heart's about to stop. <laughs> you know that this is going to happen. What... And Talon's next to you. You guys are you guys are sipping on cocaine tea or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this is my new favorite personality for you, by the way. Um, <laughs> you're about to die. What do you turn to Talon and say to him with your last sentence?
1: Oh, man. Probably something very inappropriate. Oh,
0: we're getting a lot of Hannah in this episode today. This is great. No, okay. I love it.
1: Uh, I would just say, you know, uh, you're the love of my life. And then I die from a cocaine <laughs> overdose.
0: <laughs> That's what you're going with, huh? Love of my life. Uh, huh? Yeah,
1: love of my life. Or I'd probably, uh, you know, depending on where we are in our life, I might remind him to, like, take out the trash or, or
0: like, feed the cat or something. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget like, to Thanks. take out the trash.
1: <laughs> <laughs> until her final breath she was nagging me
0: (laughs) she nagged me until she was dead literally the moment she died
1: what would your final words be to uh rebecca if you were dying not from a cocaine
0: overdose um what would my final words be to rebecca i don't know i i you know i've thought about this a little bit before uh i have a wild imagination and i stay up late at nights thinking about random shit that does not surprise me at all. It's it I don't know. I'd want to say something romantic, but there's not much that has gone without being said between Rebecca and I. Like Rebecca knows how I feel. She 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 knows all the things that I think and feel. I feel like I try to get a joke in. That's like a meaningful joke, you know, <laughs> like um man i'm trying to i'm trying to think of anything we have so many inside jokes w- that it's kind of hard to choose but it it would be an inside joke i'm now i'm going to think about it now i'm going to think about like what's the inside joke that i would say for her to to always remember like that's a bitch that's the last <laughs> thing he said to me you know like because she knows she knows i love her she knows that she's the most important person in my life uh, and and i feel like it would be wasted for the last thing I say to be just a repeat, just another thing that I've that she already knows and, and feels. But a joke, a good joke that would be everlasting, that she can be like, Forever this will be the last thing that he said to me. <laughs> and it's just gonna remind her of some joke thing that we've come up with. That would to me, that would be the perfect way to go.
1: I think that's a good point that like uh you know, you should you should be telling people what they mean to you while you're alive um yeah but that's a lot of pressure that means you have to pre-plan your last words and keep them a secret from her forever until yeah. you die
0: you're not wrong that would it be, that would be a hard lot for of pressure. me
1: <laughs> oh i gotta think of my last words now then and and not tell talon my great idea
0: i think that's gonna be our that's gonna be our um our uh prompt email for this week is tell us what, what
1: your last words are gonna what would
0: be. what would you want your last words to be if you can if what are the last words that you're going to keep a secret you know other than emailing us and we reading it on our show um what are you gonna hold on to forever so that you can so that when you're about to die from either a cocaine overdose like anna or just a classic <laughs> uh heart condition like conan doyle um what are you gonna say to your beloved that's a good
1: prompt and uh should we take that opportunity then to get into our end of show notes
0: yeah let's do that because man, there's so much more that we we have to talk about with conan doyle um you know with, with talking about sherlock holmes himself and um and then talking about the spirituality aspect of of conan doyle um it's not that we're going to do a second part you know our our next episode will be chill and we're probably going to chat about what Holmes kind of represents and how he's depicted um nowadays compared to back in the day mm-hmm. but uh but I think in October we're probably going to revisit the uh spirituality aspect that Conan Doyle represented and was really really proselytizing to a lot of people um that yeah, was... and there are a
1: lot of interesting stories that go along with that, like fairies and stuff too. It wasn't just ghosts. So he believed in a, a lot of interesting stuff.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think that that is definitely going to be some more conversation to be had later because he just has so much. We we barely touched on his the excitement of of him being a whaler, and like like and an amateur did...
1: boxer and all sorts he did of shit so
0: much it was crazy all the shit he did so um there's a lot to be said for conan doyle uh honestly a lot more than i really expected i thought it was going to be kind of a dumb episode but it turned out to be a really good one i think
1: i like it when you're pleasantly surprised by how interesting an author was
0: <laughs> yeah always i'm always happy when an author ends up being more exciting than what i thought and yeah. um hold on I'm going to share my screen because this is what I've been working on while we've been talking um... oh my
1: god how did you do that <laughs> okay sorry for this is not a visual medium so what I am looking at is a an old dude's face um, that, is his face. That is, that is his face
0: that is Richard Doyle's face yeah
1: okay uh, Tyler found a an old picture of Richard Dickie Doyle Put a chef's hat on him, a spatula and some tongs behind him, and flames, red flames. This is all black and white aside from that. And it says Dickie Doyle's old-fashioned Scottish barbecue, and I am dying now.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't believe you did this and managed to have a conversation about an author at the same time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did I, at any point did you were you like, what is he doing? What why is no, he distracted? I mean,
1: I could tell you were looking at your computer, but you were playing along very well, so I was like, okay, he must be reading notes or something, but no, you were making art. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I am confused. What's above him? Is that supposed to be a steak?
0: It is a piece of meat, yeah. I am I was going to try and add a few different elements above his, like, surrounding his head, orbiting around his head, <laughs> um, but we're getting to the end of the show, so I, I wanted to show yeah. it to you before before we ended.
1: I like this. <laughs>
0: It's and a good start. I just, I just realized that I haven't saved, so I'm going to do that right now while you start Oh our my
1: outcome. gosh, <laughs> you just lose all of it. Okay, so in the meantime, uh, remember to send us what you want your last words to be at lewisandlovecraftgmail.com. Um, you can also connect with us on facebook.com slash lewisandlovecraft, uh, just straight up lewisandlovecraft.com, or on Instagram at lewisandlovecraft, which is where we are most active um, and you can DM us there too, if that's easier for you to send us, uh, your final words.
0: Yeah. Make sure you rate and review us on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on, whether it's Spotify, which can do a five-star rating, if, you know, if you want to do five stars, um, or, uh, iTunes, or I guess it's, it's, uh, Apple, Apple podcast, iTunes podcast. Apple that's podcast. Where you do it. I think even some of the other ones out there, um, You're able to do that as well as Podchaser is really huge if you haven't checked out Podchaser you should on Podchaser it's basically like IMDB for podcasts you can follow me Um, I don't know if Hannah has an account but you can follow me and if I ever guest on another show it'll actually tell you that I'm on that show Um, you can do that with other people obviously um you can also review and rate specific episodes and shows so it's it's a little bit more in depth and if you really want to help us out that's a great way to do it
1: and the best way the very best way to help us tyler what is that
0: well it's gonna be to tell your friends you know you gotta you gotta go out into the world and you gotta you know go golfing with people golfing all that you have to um dig up dead bodies and tell them as the medical examiners are testing, um, tell the medical examiners um, go try uh, experimental drugs and um, when you're hanging out with those people, tell them about our show. Um, Send Hannah weird uh, tea leaves in the mail.
1: (laughs) The real best way to help us is to send me uh, coca leaves in the mail. Don't send me cocaine in the mail. Just...
0: Uh, yeah, that's the best way. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's it. So Hannah, do you have anything to tease the next episode?
1: Um, No, because I'm not exactly sure who our next biography is going to be on at this point. But uh, our next chill episode will be, as you alluded to, a little bit more Sherlock Holmes discussion. Uh, We'll probably do our our favorite game, which is Hannah reads one star reviews to Tyler and he tries to guess which book it is.
0: And she says, Uh, this is an easy one. You'll get it. And then I don't. And I look like an idiot.
1: (laughs) You did really well the first time. Um, So I had high hopes for round two, but we'll see if you can. Uh, bounce back in the next round
0: all right and with that remember to drink your coca tea and stay safe ghoul gang